Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 8, chapter 16. You know what I realized? I need to talk louder. I was having really tr- a lot of trouble getting r- rid of like the very background hum in the podcast. The hiss. It's just down in the low. Just You can just hear it. And what I came to realize is that I'm talking really quietly. So then I have to crank the volume up in order for the voice to be at sort of acceptable podcasting levels. And then once you crank the volume up that much, all the little minuscule hisses in the background, just the room noise, gets cranked up as well. So I think if I just talk a bit louder in a sort of normal talking voice, uh, hopefully it sounds better. Still tinkering with the sound. Still trying to get it right, but hopefully this makes some difference and tonight's podcast sounds again marginally better than yesterday's and we'll keep tinkering until it sounds really really good uh you don't care about that sometimes i just start talking and i don't know why i'm saying things uh oh yeah i'm just halfway through watching cruella the latest disney movie um paused it not halfway through for tonight and i'll watch the other half tomorrow night Oh yeah, and by the way, I had my first day of work today. That's probably the big news. My first day working as a business analyst again, inducted, had my you know big introduction to the company, and I had to do it all from home remotely because we're in a lockdown here in Victoria. So it was a really weird first day. I just kind of went, you know, into my office, as in like you know the office room of my own house. Um, you know, got up, got out of bed had a shower and just walked down the hallway and there I am at work. And so I've met my new team and my new boss and everyone, but I've never actually met any of them. Anyway, did a full day of work today. Pretty cool. And um, I thought we'd celebrate with a bit of a family movie night. Watched a bit of Cruella. And I was just thinking about this. Um, as I was watching it, I actually really started to like it. By the halfway point, I'm really enjoying this movie. But there was a bit of something that happened at the start which made me roll my eyes. And at that point, I thought, oh no, this movie's going to suck. But it actually it got really good. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But still, Cruella is about Cruella Deville, the baddie from 101 Dalmatians. And it's kind of like an anti hero story. But to start with, you know, well, she's the protagonist of the story. We've got to be on her side, and she hates dogs. So that's, you know, problem number one. How are we going to have a main character who hates dogs and expect anyone to like them? So they had to justify that. First of all, they just give her a dog. So little Corella Deville just has a dog sidekick, just like, you know, Tintin. So you can't. Accuse her of being a dog hater. Mm-mm-mm. She's not a dog hater. She loves dogs. Her best friend is a dog. Uh, what she hates is Dalmatians specifically. And then they had to give her a reason to hate specifically Dalmatians. And um, I just thought it was really funny because what's the first thing you think of when you have to justify someone hating Dalmatians? Like as a number one Part of their personality is the fact that they hate Dalmatians. Dalmatians must have done something really bad to this person in the past. What's the first 
most cliche thing, like you're in a writer's room and that's what you've got to brainstorm. All right, guys, we've got to give her a reason to like really hate Dalmatians. And we've only got five seconds. Quick, someone give me an idea. Oh, uh, you, uh, Dalmatians killed her mum. That is, yeah, okay, we'll run with that. <laughs> it's not really a spoiler. This happens in the first, you know, five minutes of the film or something. But Dalmatians kill Corella Deville's mum. Uh, okay. <laughs> it just seemed like you could you could kind of reverse engineer the writer's room workshop session that got you to that point of the movie. All right. We need to establish that she doesn't hate dogs. She just hates Dalmatians. And we need to give a really good reason that anyone else would agree with. If, if Dalmatians had killed your mum, you'd also hate them. Cool. Justified. We can now carry on with a movie about Cruella de Vil. And everyone can agree that she's deep down just a good person. <laughs> I thought that was really uh, funny. It's later gets better. You know, that was the height of the cliché-ness was there. And I thought it was going to be one of those like redemption films where everything the baddie does is justified. And, you know, she is the baddie. But halfway through, and it seems like it is actually going to be a legit anti-hero story, which is cool. I'm into that. Now, I could be wrong. I have this fear that in the end, it won't be an anti-hero story. Like, it will end with another, like, you know, right at the end, flips back around. That's my fear. You know, like the old... You see this a lot in films, but the best example is Eat, Pray, Love. The movie starts about a woman who has a terrible breakup and comes to realize that, you know, life is about more than just who you're married to or who your partner is. And you should learn to love yourself and appreciate yourself and celebrate yourself. And so she goes on this quest to discover who she is. And that's what the story is about. Like, you don't need to be with someone else to be happy. And it's about self-discovery. It's really beautiful. And then the film ends with her finding a new boyfriend. And then she lives happily ever after. And it's just like, why did I just watch two hours of that message to just negate it in the last scene of the film? <laughs> it's so dumb. But it's like, no, Hollywood, no. It's not, I mean, we can't have a, a, a story where there's romance in it at the start and then have it end without more you know, another love interest. That's just unsatisfying. So I just feel like they completely just did an about face in the last few minutes of that film and just went, nah, it's not really about what we've been saying it's about. It's just the normal Hollywood ending. Bye. <laughs> um, wow, I've ranted for six and a half minutes and we haven't even talked about War and Peace yet. Okay, probably should talk about Book 8, Chapter 16. Dolokhov actually tries to talk Anatoly out of this plan to abduct Natasha. Where is he coming from with this objection? Is there anything particularly interesting about Balaga worth discussing? <laughs> uh, and do you think Anatoly's plan is going to work? Why or why not? Dolokhov isn't trying very hard to stop Anatoly. It's a token objection that he, he knows Anatoly will ignore. But then Dolokhov can say, see, I tried to warn you that it was a bad idea. He's just stirring up trouble and still trying to keep Anatoly beholden to him. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Dolokhov 
just he he is aware that it's a terrible idea and he is in some way trying to tell his friend you know this is a terrible idea but also he very much wants the entertainment factor of it doesn't he i mean he'd be like yeah this is a terrible idea but there's no way i'm not coming along with you uh god you you just at this point of the story you just want to be like I want to get into Natasha's head and know what she's thinking. Is that weird? Like, I, I, I guess I do know what she's thinking. I know what it's like to be so swept up by, like, adolescent emotions. Um, but from the outsider's perspective, you just look at her and go, how, how are you justifying this in your head again, young Natasha? How, how is this a good idea? You've got the best family. Sure, they're going a little bit broke, but... Now you want to elope and run away from them and with this guy who has just like thrown a love bomb at you from nowhere. You don't even really know him and he's just like, I love you more than anything. Oh, it's it's really weird. Kara Kikar says, I just knew Tolstoy was going to drag this out. <laughs> well, I mean, the book goes for 2,000 pages. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, clearly he's going to drag a few things out. Uh, I think we need some war in here. Stat, the bored rich are making trouble for everyone. Yeah, true, but it is very entertaining, isn't it? I feel like almost like Dolokhov. Like, I just want to see this go down. <laughs> I want to see some chaos happen. Um, all right. Chapter 17. Goes like this. Hang on, I've got a hair in my mouth. All right. Anatole went out of the room and returned a few minutes later wearing a fur coat girt with a silver belt and a sable cap jauntily set on one side and very becoming to his handsome face. Having looked in a mirror and standing before Dolokhov in the same pose he had assumed before he lifted a glass of wine. Well, goodbye, Theodore. Thank you for everything and farewell, said Anatole. Well, comrades and friends, he considered for a moment. Of my youth, farewell, he said, turning to Marakin and the others. Though they were all going with him, Anatole evidently wished to make something touching and solemn out of this address to his comrades. He spoke slowly in a loud voice, and throwing out his chest, slightly swayed one leg. All take glasses, you too, Balaga. Well, comrades and friends of my youth, we've had our fling and lived and reveled, hey? And now, when shall we meet again? I am going abroad. We have had a good time now. Farewell, lads. To our health. Hurrah! He cried, and emptying his glass, flung it on the floor. To your health, said Balaga, who also emptied his glass, and wiped his mouth with his handkerchief. Marokin embraced Anatole with tears in his eyes. Ah, Prince, how sorry I am to part from you. Let's go, let's go, cried Anatole. Balaga was about to leave the room. No, stop, said Anatole. Shut the door. We have first to sit down. That's the way. They shut the door and all sat down. Now, quick march, lads, said Anatole, rising. Joseph, his valet, handed him his sabotage and sabre, and they all went out into the vestibule. And where's the fur cloak? asked Dolokhov. Hey, Ignatka, go to Matrina Matrevna and ask her for the sabre cloak. Sable cloak. I have heard that 
what elopements are like, continued Dolokhov with a wink. Why, she'll rush out more dead than alive, just in the thing she's wearing. If you delay at all, there'll be tears and papa and mama, and she's frozen in a minute and must go back. But you wrap your fur cloak around her first thing and carry her to the sleigh. The valet brought a woman's fox-lined cloak. Fool, I told you, the sable one. Hey, Matringa, the sable, he shouted, so that his voice rang through the rooms. A handsome, slim and pale-faced gypsy girl with glittering black eyes and curly blue-black hair, wearing a red shawl, ran out with a sable mantle on her arm. Here, I don't grudge it, take it, she said, evidently afraid of her master and yet regretful of her cloak. Dolokhov, without answering, took the cloak, threw it over Matrina, and wrapped her up in it. That's the way, said Dolokhov, and then so. And he turned the collar up round her head, leaving only a little of the face uncovered, and then so, do you see? And he pushed Anatoly's head forward to meet the gap left by the collar, through which Matrina's brilliant smile was seen. Well, goodbye, Matrina, said Anatole, kissing her. Ah, my revels here are over. Remember me to Steshka. There, goodbye, goodbye, Matrina. Wish me luck. Well, Prince, may God give you great luck, said Matrina in her gypsy accent. Two troikas were standing before the porch, and two young drivers were holding the horses. Balaga took his seat in the front one, and holding his elbows high, arranged the reins deliberately. Anatole and Dolokhov got in with him. Makarin Kovostikov and a valet seated themselves in the other sleigh. Well, are you ready? asked Balaga. Go, he cried, twisting the reins round his hands, and the troika tore down the Nititsky Boulevard. Tapu, get out of the way, hi, Tapu! The shouting of the Balaga and of the sturdy young fellow seated on the box was all that could be heard. On the Arbat Square, the troika caught against a carriage. Something cracked. Shouts were heard, and the troika flew along the Arbat Street. After taking a turn along Podnovinsky Boulevard, Belaga began to rein in, and turning back, drew at the crossing of the old Konyushini Street. The young fellow on the box jumped down to hold the horses, and Anatole and Dolokhov went along the pavement. When they reached the gate, Dolokhov whistled. The whistle was answered, and a maidservant ran out. Come into the courtyard, or you'll be seen. She'll come out directly, said she. Dolokhov stayed by the gate. Anatole followed the maid into the courtyard, turned the corner, and ran up into the porch. He was met by Gabriel, Maya Dmitrievna's gigantic footman. Come to the mistress, please, said the footman in his deep bass, intercepting any retreat. To what mistress? Who are you? asked Anatole in a breathless whisper. Kindly step in. My orders are to bring you in. Karagin, come back shouted Dolokhov, betrayed, back. Dolokhov, after Anatole entered, had remained at the wicket gate and was struggling with the yard porter who was trying to lock it. With a last desperate effort, Dolokhov pushed the porter aside and when Anatole ran back, seized him by the arm, pulled him through the wicket and ran back with him to the troika. All right, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Oh, it's going to go down. I think, uh, who was it that said, um, Kara Kikas? Tolstoy's going to drag this one out. He certainly is. But what an exciting moment to drag out. And um, yeah, I'm already looking forward to reading tomorrow's episode.
All right, guys, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.